Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, the interlude we became. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, the interlude we became, episode four, Eldritch Triangulations to Divide the Strongest Alliances. It's summer break, so we're taking our vacation from Temerant for the next few months for a jaunt to the Big Apple, or at least the Lovecraftian magical version that we discover in N.K. Jemisin's The City We Became. This episode, we're going to be covering chapters 9 and 10. All right, so with this book, definitely there is a content warning. While this book is a lot of fun, it features frank discussions of race, gender, and sexuality in contemporary America from the perspective of marginalized communities. It is important stuff, like important with a capital I, and it is worth learning about, especially now. It also uses what... <laughs> I I am not going to say your line. You are going to say your line. It also features what famed Premier League broadcaster Arlo White would refer to as fruity language. If you can handle that, we hope you'll give it a listen. Now, this particular episode also includes discussions of sexual assault, so be aware of that. And a lot of words that I won't repeat. That too. As always, we assume that you have read the associated passage, which in this case is through the end of chapter 10, or at least that you don't mind spoilers. Naturally, we also want you to be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Finally, say it with me, we are in no way affiliated with N.K. Jemisin or her publisher, Orbit Books. All right, with all that out of the way, let's dive in. Awesome. So we start off with Chapter 9, A Better New York is in sight. Better for who? That's the ultimate question now, isn't it? Yeah. So there's a couple things that I noticed. This is primarily a Bronca chapter, so that means we've got Bronca, Yijing, Raul, Jess, and Veniza as our primary characters in this. Raul, we've only heard about up till now. And now we're actually having some interaction with him. He's basically the person that the committee in charge of overseeing, I guess, the art scene in the Bronx. Raul is the one that is essentially the messenger every time they have bad news. He's in an unenviable spot. And it's interesting seeing Bronca's perspective on him. She respects him as an artist because he is an accomplished sculptor and he comes from a Chicano community. One of the things that stuck out to me is the paradox of management. In most industries, and art is an industry, make no mistake, people get into it for the love of the game, so to speak, because they like making whatever it is the industry does because they like something about doing it, whether this is art or music or software or any number of things. I know for a fact when the founders of the little indie company that I worked for back in 2015, 2016, started it. They started off with people who loved working on the games and loved working on either the coding or the design or the artwork. And the people that started those positions as they hired more people ultimately had to manage their people rather than doing the thing that they loved to do. Yeah, and the skill set associated with management 
is different from the skill set associated with doing those tasks. Like, I've had good managers and I've had bad managers and I've had them at all levels of technical proficiency. And the thing that I remember about the good managers is it's not that they could do the job as well as I could or that they were just as skilled at the technical tasks or coding or anything like that. It's they were better at figuring out how to, one, make decisions, two, protect their team, and three, help the team come together around a decision and take a course of action. In fact, actually, the people that think that they can do my job better than I can do my job are not people that I want to have be my managers. The other thing that being a manager involves is knowing that there are going to be times when you take the L, when you fight for your team and you lose and you have to deliver the bad news to the rest of your team. It's a tough position to be in. It's one that nobody wants to be in, and it's just a fact. We see that Bronca struggles with this on the regular. Yeah, she doesn't give in to things. She holds tight, and I mean tight, to her ideals, and uses them as a shield even when they're not enough. Yeah, she holds fast to her ideals. And one of the things I notice is that while it's admirable, it's not enough. Having ideals is not sufficient to defend those ideals. Her first instinct is just to fight against whoever delivers her the bad news and try and argue with them even as intellectually she knows that it's not going to do any good because the person telling her this stuff doesn't have any power to change the things that she's trying to change. What I found really striking about this was even though she ultimately comes out on top, it's not because of her willingness to just stand there and then rail against Raul. No. In fact, it takes a lot of grassroots organizational things from people who know how to go around the obstacle rather than try to barrel through it or defend against it. It's also worth pointing out that because Bronca has been resistant to any kind of online engagement, she doesn't know how to deal with the online harassment campaign that the alt artists put together. She's not even aware that it exists until people tell her about it. She's, oh, the internet stuff doesn't matter. That's not real. And while we are fans of saying Twitter isn't real, behind Twitter there are real people. And if they get angry enough, they will go from being just little satellite pesters to being a conglomeration that does have real power. When I say Twitter isn't real life, what I mean is that it is not the sum total of real life. It represents a very small portion of overall, but it can wield disproportionate power if you let it. In this case, it's Twitter, it's Reddit, it's Facebook, Instagram, what have you. The people that the alt artists are working with have actually been laying their plans here for a long time. By the time Bronca has even heard of the alt artists, the damage has already been done. They've already doxed everyone at the center. They've already 
started gathering people to be harassment vectors. And they've already worked out a strategy to amplify their message, to make it sound like this is the dominant narrative. And Bronca, on her own, has no way to combat this. It's only when Vinitsa and Jess and Yi Jing, of all people, actually come together and start devising plans to deal with the specific threats that they're able to counter this narrative that's been concocted. There's a parallel to be drawn here between Bronca's unwillingness to let her team at the center help and her unwillingness to delegate and her unwillingness to trust their opinions and their expertise and their lived experiences with her unwillingness to work with, as we'll see next week, the rest of her city. This is part of what I think makes Bronca such an interesting protagonist. Even as she is strong, she is righteous, she is good, and she has courage, she's flawed, deeply flawed, just like everybody else in this city, just like all of the other avatars. She has her flaws, she has her pride, her stubbornness. We don't get the sense that she is in any way better than anyone else, just by virtue of being an avatar. And we can see the people around her oftentimes act as leavening influences that help give her perspective, Venitsa in particular. A thing that I do know is also is that she is severely in denial when bad news comes in. She goes immediately to listen to her voicemails, only to find that Raul is telling her something she doesn't want to hear. And so she just doesn't listen to the rest of it. So she doesn't get all the information she needs. And so she is blindsided when the woman in white comes in and offers her enough money to run the center for a very long time, even if they lose all of their funding. And it would be enough to tempt most people. And I think this is also kind of a narrative shorthand where the easiest way to show that someone has unwavering principles is offer them a lot of money that would make their life easier and them to have the intestinal fortitude to say no. It's not just the money, right? The money in this case represents not just a dollar amount. It represents the ability for Bronca to free herself from having to worry about these administrative tasks that she finds tiresome. It represents security. And up to a point, independence. But that's the trap here, and that's what she recognizes. It seems like this is going to give her what she wants, the freedom to do what she wants. However, the strings attached to it functionally mean that she would have to sacrifice her ideals, in this case, the art of the unknown, the art of the primary avatar. That's part of it, but also she would still have to feature something by this abhorrent group of people who, let's be real, if I saw that a museum or an art center or what have you was displaying things from a organization that I knew to be corrupt or bigoted or what have you, if I was able to find things about the alt artists online that were this absolutely wretched I wouldn't go to the art center. I wouldn't think of the art center as 
a place that I would like to share my income with. And not only that, there's a pernicious effect here too, because let's say that even if the specific pieces that they end up choosing to display are perfectly fine and non-offensive and worthwhile in their own right, by doing so, the center would effectively be mainstreaming this collective and lending them this veneer of respectability and effectively covering for their less savory elements. It's the same argument that you get when progressive or liberal politicians go on a network that I am not going to name to try to reach their audience. Do you have the this has a good effect of demystifying the otherness of the progressive side of the aisle? Or is it lending credibility? Does it make that network more legitimate? Or does it tarnish your own reputation? Where do you draw the line in your ideals of having to stand against something or trying to extend that olive branch? And in this case, really, what the woman in white is asking for is effectively a way to legitimize this collective that has no greater good in mind. Right. You do have to look at the motives behind the act. Because in this case, specifically this case, the idea is to discredit the center. So it's discrediting the center among the people that the center is ostensibly supposed to represent, while at the same time legitimizing these hateful groups. Because if you're only presenting this sanitized version of who the alt artists are, for a lot of people who just go in on a weekend afternoon because they're bored and they haven't necessarily done a deep dive into who all the artists are or what have you, and they just see out of context, oh, hey, here's this painting by this one group. Okay. And they don't think about it beyond that. What it does is it creates this air of legitimacy about what they're doing, that it is somehow perfectly fine because it's presented without any context. And that makes it easier for people to be receptive to their more toxic impulses. Once you think of this group, the alt artists, as either neutral or good, you're less likely to see all of their evil. Exactly. So there's also a number of interesting things here that I saw. So the woman in white does this thing where she talks about how, well, people are basically just selfish and evil. And she basically just makes this sweeping assumption that, oh yes, people are going to try and take advantage of everything that they can. And it's this great big sweeping statement. And what we find is that people who hold this view are oftentimes using it to justify their own particular moral alignment. If they say that people will always just try to take advantage of this sort of thing, oftentimes it is because that is just simply what they would do. And they aren't imagining that other people might think differently. Also, the idea of living permanently in one square of an alignment chart, like just that that is an is and not is a malleable state, is odd to me. And I think misleading, I think 
way more people live in the gray area, that it's more of an amorphous blob that kind of sometimes moves around the alignment chart. I consider myself a good person. I consider myself someone that wouldn't take advantage of other people. And yet, if the stakes are low, I don't have as much problem with that if I can gamify it. For example, when I used to play WoW, World of Warcraft, every year at Christmas time, there are quests to do all the things. I think it's like Winterfest or what have you. WoW players don't come at me, but you can correct me. I haven't played in years. Sorry. But anyway, at that point, I would on the first day get all of the quests figured out, go look on the auction house, see how many people are looking for milk, go to a vendor that was right outside the auction house in Ironforge, buy a ton of milk for a very, very small amount of money in the game, in-game money, and go auction house it for like 20, 30, 40 times more than what I'd paid for it, and people bought it. And you know what? That's different because it's in a game where this is not causing a massive disadvantage, but I took advantage of people who were too lazy to go to the person who was selling milk. In not game economy, I would never do that. But if there's no real dire consequences, yeah, why not? Morally, what does that say about me? Where do I land on an alignment chart because of that? I think the thing that I drew from this was that if you believe that humans have choices in what they are and what they make of themselves, you can actually hold them to standards. If you believe that everyone is evil, everyone is selfish, everyone is purely out for their own benefit, then you pretty much are off the hook for any sort of standard. It's like the purge. Yeah. Well, everybody else is doing it. Nobody has a choice. They're just acting according to their nature. Of course they're selfish. Of course they're evil. Of course they're harmful and out to get people. And you can't conceptualize of someone who isn't. It's an attitude that we see, I think, in a particularly Calvinist viewpoint. If you are someone who's familiar with a lot of Christian theology, Calvinist theology states that the human condition is one of total depravity, that we are inherently fallen and terrible people, and it's only through grace that anyone achieves salvation. And the thing that oftentimes comes out of that is even as you have people who will do a whole lot of self-flagellating over their fallen nature, they don't let that stop them from doing all kinds of terrible things. They just claim to feel bad about it. And then when people act according to said fallen nature, they don't really have a whole lot of nerve to actually stand up to it because they assume, oh, they're just doing what I would do. It's one thing if it is, like you say, low stakes and taking advantage of a market inefficiency and selling virtual milk that doesn't have any scarcity attached to it or anything like that. I mean, again, this is not like you're taking anything away from the overall supply of milk. I'm just allowing people who are willing to pay four gold for a 30 silver item to pay me four gold for the thing I paid 30 silver for. Exactly. Like, that's very different. This is, again, why online economies are not representative of real economies. Very true. I think 
that would be an interesting thing to delve into with a real economist. However, sometimes disease spread can be extrapolated interestingly through things like World of Warcraft. And it has. (laughs) That's a topic for another time, though. Yes. Another thing that I noticed here is the tension and hypocrisy within the white feminist position where the white portion overrides the feminist side. Yeah. And this also, I think, ties into a lot of corporate philanthropy efforts where a lot of people who have made their living through economic exploitation and don't want to pay taxes for the greater social good are still willing to spend a lot of money on philanthropy, but they only want to spend it on their own terms. Like they put all sorts of controls in place because they're afraid that anyone who they donate to is just going to exploit it because that's what they would do. Yeah. It's the same principle as if we were to ask someone for money. Most people, when you lend a large amount of money, even if they say they don't want to have a hand in whatever the thing you use it on or have a moral stance on anything else you ever spend money on because you can't pee in a corner of that pool and expect it to just not affect the rest of it. They think that they have a moral right to dictate what you do with it as though it weren't a gift. Or if not dictate, at least judge. Yes. I think some charities are better run than others. There are some that are far more effective at how they do good. And yeah, you should definitely think carefully about how you donate money and who you donate to, making sure that, yes, the people who are running it are doing what they say they are. And aren't corrupt. Aren't just using this as a money laundering operation, because some people do. Like if you donate to like a wealthy philanthropy fund, there's a good chance that a lot of it is going to mostly just lining the pocketbooks of whoever's running it. And Bronca even says something to the effect of, I must be doing nonprofits incorrectly because other people who are running nonprofits are becoming millionaires and here I am. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like you think about charity galas and things like that, where you have these lavish operations where the cost of it between the food and the entertainment and the venue and the gift bags and all that stuff and the goods that they're supposedly auctioning off for benefit, that cost is probably up in the millions of dollars. And then they celebrate when they crack 100,000 in donations. Then you start to realize a lot of this is probably more about making rich people feel good about how much money they have than it is about actually doing good. Anyway... I do want to touch base on your white feminist discussion also. So you mentioned the whole thing about how the white cis feminist is getting caught up in the white part and not in the intersectional part. They might say that they're not, but that's who they want to benefit. And I think this book does such a good job of both lampshading the heck out of everything, but also being very poignant. I don't think that you could read this and not see 
the direct parallels, the direct neon sign of like, no. <laughs> but I think that the lack of subtlety is ingenious because the right people actually do see things as though it was outlined in neon. I know it's easy for some people with more moderate views to view things as acceptable when they're in that same, or when it's just a little bit over their line of acceptability. But for those of us who have that very strong moral social justice core, pushing just a little bit past and like trying to manipulate just so that it's respectable or whatever on this side of respectable, I think makes me way more upset than the people who are just accepting of how bigoted and just jerkish and awful and wrong they are, who feel that righteous thing. So I think what you're getting at is the concept of the Overton window. For those of you who aren't familiar, the Overton window is this idea that for radical groups to succeed, what they do is they will propose something way outside of what is mainstream. And then when a more moderate, but still further to one end than most people would accept group proposes a counter, the moderates will look at this second person and say, oh, hey, that is a moderated position and therefore we will grant it acceptability and thus moving the window of acceptability further to one direction than otherwise it would go. And this almost invariably, right now at least, seems to be, I have an abhorrent view, I have a slightly less abhorrent but more respectable view. Or it's only more respectable in comparison to this very ridiculously extreme position that's already been put up. And so every time that that just slightly more respectable version gets put forward, it moves that window further out towards the extreme. And I think that that's something that is consistent in this conversation where we've already seen the extreme version of the entity. We've already seen the destruction and the bigotry and the hatred and the grossness. We've had an interaction with the alt artists themselves who are just wretched human beings. And then the woman in white comes in and by comparison, seems much more reasonable. She's saying, we'll give you no strings attached money, which is a lie, in exchange for you picking three pieces from this plethora that the alt artists have available. And all I ask in exchange is for you to take down this unique view of the city, which happens to be your absolute favorite exhibit, because I don't like it. And it's very telling that this is the portrait of the New York that Bronca loves. This is also the portrait of New York having been painted by our main avatar. I really like how this is a version that is both strong and vulnerable simultaneously. The image of the primary avatar sleeping on piles of newspapers is at once beatific and also vulnerable. This is him not just in his strength, but also his weakness in repose. It's 
a version that Bronca feels almost motherly towards. It's kind of cute. But it also tells us a little bit about his position. Like we see things where there is a painting of this brown eye giving the side eye on the side of one building, an old tenement building, looking suspiciously at a steel and glass condo building that's going up. This is sort of the way that oftentimes historical buildings that are affordable get bulldozed to make way for luxury condominiums and high rises that end up displacing the people who live there and replacing them with the only people who can afford to live there, which is to say rich white folk, erasing this part of history. Erasing this part of the city. And driving people away who otherwise would have a home there, destroying homes. Driving people away who otherwise would bring their culture and diversity to this part of the city. I think also it speaks to this idea of housing as a market force as opposed to a necessity. Or as a human right. Housing as investment, not as a way to live. Not a shelter. We also get a bit here about the nature of stochastic terrorism. So the alt artists, as part of their campaign here, have essentially set Bronca up as this boogeyman of sorts for the usual cast of characters. You know, the 4chan types, the Redditors, the folks who decide they're just going to look for someone to run a hate campaign against. Also, I'm going to draw a distinction between conservative politicians and elected officials and conservative people. I don't think that everyone who votes conservative would necessarily be as corrupt as all of the people that are elected who claim to be conservative. I'm not going to paint everyone with the same broad brush. I think, though, that elected conservatives would also be people lumped into the group that would view or use Bronca as a boogeyman. What we see here is these groups spend a lot of time talking about how supposedly horrible Bronca is and then going out and laying the case that she's their enemy, that she is destructive, that she is a threat to their way of life. That she is deserving of violence being perpetrated towards her. Even if they never outright tell someone that they need to go do this, they just simply gently suggest through dog whistles and subtle dehumanizations that, yeah, this is an acceptable thing. And I do want to stress that I absolutely believe that the number of people that this comprises is a very small percentage of people. I don't think that the majority of people, regardless of political party or political ideals, are going to perpetrate or incite violence or hatred or bigotry. But that's just it. It doesn't need to be a majority. All it takes is one person motivated by this to cause problems. The alt-artists are essentially creating this breeding ground for people who are supposedly lone wolves acting on their own without any direction, but who've been 
inspired by their rhetoric. They create a narrative online and they use that to just drown out alternatives, especially when the people who could counter that narrative online vacate the space. So there are some other things in here that I thought were really cool. So when Jess and Vinitsa and Yijing hear what's going on and see exactly the scope of what's happening in the online space, they immediately rally in solidarity around Bronca. They say, okay, hey, what's being done here to you is wrong. Flat out wrong. If you need a place to stay, it's yours. And it's especially poignant that this comes from Yijing, who does not get along well with Bronca. They're trying to make sure that Bronca stays safe. And instead of taking any of them up on their offers to stay with them for a little bit, she decides to stay in her office at the center, probably for the best. And one of those reasons is because now we know about the magic barrier and the way that it works, your home winds up being protected by your cityness. The center gets the protection. Granted, bad things still happen and it's still able to be invaded, that said, the center is not just where Bronca works, it's also where a lot of the keyholders live, where they take shelter, where they're safe. And so Bronca's staying there is her way to protect them because the center would be invaded whether she stays there or not. We see that because the alt artists stage an eldritch invasion after hours. They would have done that whether Bronca was there or not. Their goal is to destroy the artist unknown. Their goal is to effectively whitewash everything and replace it with their own. It's an insidious campaign and it is flagrantly illegal. It is massively disrespectful. And because Bronco was there, she was able to expel them from this space and save the lives of all of the people who were living there because it wasn't just a campaign of defacing paintings or what have you, or putting up paint or whatever. They also had lighter fluid. They were gonna burn the place down if they had to. Bronca's protection. Or at least they were going to burn the exhibit and didn't care about collateral damage. Bronca's intervention saved lives, plain and simple. It's also what reminds her of the power of community it's something that she's constantly struggling with, obviously. Her nature as the avatar of the Bronx gives her a certain amount of power that goes over and beyond what most normal people could do on their own. But she's still part of a collective, a larger collective. She definitely feels a temptation to just go it alone, as we'll discuss next time. And that actually, I think, is a good place to bring us to the next chapter. There's one other thing I want to talk about. Oh, okay. She is so very protective of the people that she loves that she kind of tries to make them leave her to her own devices. It's like if she can't defend everyone, they at least need to get away. And she doesn't give them the opportunity to fight with her. With Vanessa, she is starting to act in a way that is clear that Bronca is her mentor. She has similar facial expressions and gestures. 
she very much respects Bronca. And Bronca's like, I told you if there was any weird shirt going on to leave. And Vanessa's just like, why would I do that? It almost is sort of a Frodo and Sam dichotomy with Vanessa in the Sam position where Frodo's like, I have to do this alone. And then Sam responding, of course you do, Mr. Frodo, and I'm coming with you. Vanessa kind of has that attitude where, okay, yeah, you're going alone and I'm coming with you. Cool. We got this. It does also speak more to how there's a bleed over effect in the whole cityness of the area. It's hard to tell other than with zip codes and drawn lines on a map, but like in the reality of the space, it is hard to tell where a city ends. It's sort of a fractal barrier. It's not like there's a bright line where you just know. I was going to say more like a gradient. Yeah, that works too. You're not necessarily aware directly of the transition. And so we're getting more and more hints that Jersey City might be New York. There's definitely a kinship there. And I think Vinitza also plays an important role for Bronca because she provides perspective. Vinitza accepts Bronca as she is and loves her for who she is, warts and all. Vinitza doesn't ask Bronca to be anyone other than Bronca. At the same time, she reminds Bronca to pull her head out of her ash and have some perspective about how she fits in with the larger world, how her actions affect the people she cares about and the city she loves. So I think that's pretty cool. And now we move back on to the Staten Island chapters, which I'm going to say that if you're more conservative and deciding to read this book, good for you. Seriously good for you. It's a look at how perspectives are so different depending on your lived experience. And this is why representation is so important. If this story was being written by a white author, you wouldn't get the authentic perspective of people who aren't white. Even those of us who consider ourselves progressive or believe ourselves to be anti-racist or believe ourselves to be anti-homophobic or believe ourselves to be understanding of people who are usually othered. I don't know what it's like to be pulled over in a white neighborhood because I'm not white, because I am, very. Regardless of the fact that I am slightly different in my appearance, like, I definitely have the non-binary look that kind of makes people confused sometimes, and I have primary colored red hair right now, and sometimes I have primary colored blue hair, and sometimes I have brightly colored purple hair, you know, and I have a rather large tattoo and I have things that make me a, a little bit different. Like I have had the experience when I wore bondage pants, which are just basically very wide leg canvas black pants with straps on them and funny pockets because I liked them. I have had a person that I would describe as an uppity white woman with two little children 
shoo their children away from me. But that is in no way even a little bit the same as someone who literally cannot change out of their appearance, having others view them from a fearful perspective. So if you do identify with Island, if that is a person that speaks to you, I'm proud of you for reading this book. Of all the characters' perspectives, the one that I am supposed to be most aligned with in terms of my race and my level of affluence, I guess, and all of these markers that you're supposed to be able to parallel. Island should be someone that I feel sympathy for, someone that I feel kinship to, and I do not. So let's actually start here with our chapter title, which is a great pun. <laughs> Make Staten Island great against Sao Paulo. Because it gets lost. Great is spelled G-R-A-T-E. So one of the things that I took from this is this is something that really explores the quiet tragedy of Island. She is fundamentally a tragic figure. She has potential to be this force for good. She has this ability to stand up to these forces that are trying to control her. She has the ability to really take a heroic stance to do something great for her people, for her community, and for the rest of the city. We also see, though, that there are these forces that are manipulating her, that dampen those messages of solidarity with people who are downtrodden, with people who are oppressed. With people who are, in her view, other or foreign. And she's been conditioned to view them that way. So let's start by talking about her relationship with her mother, Kendra. I think this is a really powerful bit that explores the true depths of the tragedy here. We learn that Kendra and Island live in terror of Matthew, who is Island's father and Kendra's husband. We also learn that Island and Kendra do not talk about things that are important. They are also not allowed to view each other as friends and allies because if they do, Matthew will turn against them. And he's kept them divided on purpose. He's effectively our stand-in for white male patriarchy and dominance. He views everything as his by right. And by everything, we also mean people. Yes, we mean everything and everyone. He does not conceive of a world where he is not at the top. So we learn that before they got married, Kendra was an accomplished pianist, that she had been accepted into Juilliard. She was going to become a musician by trade. She was going to lead a life that she was in control of. And then she got pregnant. I have to mention, this is a rather timely thing to discuss I have very strong views. If you don't share them, okay. And I'm talking to the audience. Will shares my views. It's okay to have different opinions, but it is not okay to force your opinions on others. 
And the story that Island has always been told is that Kendra's first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. And Matthew has always mourned this hypothetical child. Hypothetical son. Who's going to be the new Matthew, so to speak. It speaks to parental expectations. It speaks to unrealistic expectations and not viewing another person, your child, as their own person with their own thoughts and their own ideals and their own passions and their own opinions. As far as Matthew is concerned, baby Connell was going to be the version of him that succeeded, that got everything that Matthew had always wanted for himself. Also that this hypothetical son would bring him joy and prestige and a lineage. We get the sense that he's always vaguely resented Island for not being Connell. For not being a boy. And more importantly, Island feels that way. She's definitely internalized all of this. And every time that Matthew expresses any kind of general affection towards her, there's always that undercurrent of resentment and control. His affection is always conditional based on Island conforming to his needs. I actually have some firsthand experience with something similar. My parents had a child before they had me. She passed when she was almost four and I was almost three. I don't remember her. She was severely brain damaged at birth. And I think in very many ways, she was the perfect child for the abusive fork that raised me. After my dad passed, so I was 10, and my rebellious phase was coupled with an abusive jerk, being my parent, quote, who had this idealized version of what my sister would have been like. And because she thought she knew what this hypothetical child, who was helpless and solely dependent on her parents because she had severe cerebral palsy, and would have been wholly dependent on caretakers, her parents, my parents, for every function of life, and was dependent on my parents for every function of life until she was, until she passed. There's this assumption that the one that's left over, the one that's still alive, the one that's still there, is not as good as the one that passed the idealized version of the one that's not there any longer. Because you can't know what that person's life, that person's opinions, that person's thoughts and expressions would be like. But you can imagine it. And when you imagine someone, you do not imagine them complexly or with differing views than you have. Yeah. We also learned that Kendra actually had an abortion. She was terrified of living with Matthew. She was terrified of losing everything that she'd worked so hard for. However, she saw the pain that Matthew seems to experience as a result of her choice and as penance gives up everything anyway. It needs to be said that she also lied to him and said that she had a miscarriage 
she has not told him in over 30 years of marriage, of knowing each other, of whatever, of all of her given up dreams, wants, aspirations, life. She's not said to Matthew, and just now when Island is 30, has just told her daughter about this. A lot of people who are in abusive relationships who become pregnant stay in abusive relationships for their kids, quote, big, huge, quote, for their kids. They feel trapped. Now, some of that is financial trap because having children is insanely expensive. It is nuts how expensive it is. Some people, in order to have childcare, spend more than they can make just on childcare to take care of the kid while they're gone. This happens to a lot of people in two-parent households where because women tend to make less than men just across the board, like trends are, and you can't deny this, overall for the same level of work even, and you can't just say that, oh, well, men do more desirable work, so therefore they're getting paid for it more. No, for the same level of work, the same duties, the same job description, everything, women tend to get paid less. And then even in a two-parent household, so like if we had kids and we wanted to put our kids into daycare, it would cost as much as what my average salary probably would be. You can't do that and pay rent if your salary is only enough to cover childcare. So, ugh, I don't understand why we don't get this. Right now, formula shortage. Telling people who can breastfeed or chest feed to just try harder and provide more milk is reductive and stupid because it's all related to whether or not their body can actually produce it. And if they can actually take the time, because it's a very involved process, to do that for their child and work. Because again, money is required. And then formula being insanely hard to get right now and insanely expensive. You can't look at just the economics of trying to go at it alone and say, oh yeah, you can just do this. That's fine. Just leave him and just keep the kid. Ugh, that's impossible. Math doesn't work that way. And that's just one part of being compassionate towards this situation. I'm going to go out on a limb here and think that Kendra probably wasn't alone in making her decision to choose to marry Matthew and stay with Matthew, regardless of the fact that she no longer was saddled with a child. I have a suspicion she was also getting a lot of pressure from her parents, her church, her general community. All of those societal and cultural factors are saying that that's the expected thing to do here. And if we're going to take 30 years ago, that's like late 80s, early 90s, and there still was an expectation that women who have a husband who can provide for them don't need to go to college. 
she wanted to go to Juilliard. I mean, anyone that gets into Juilliard and wants to go, they're going for passion. They're going because they have something that they are so good at that fills them with joy, that fills them with life. It's all about the arts. And this great tragedy here is that she's effectively had to sacrifice the things that make her great and hide them in the service of this abysmally mediocre man because he wouldn't let her spread her wings. And we see that she's tried to rebel in small, subtle ways, like soliciting for brochures for colleges in the city for Island so that she could maybe have some of the freedom that Kendra never could. That backfired. That backfired terribly. As someone, again, grew up in a really shirty household, even if it's not your fault, the mere suggestion of doing something against the wishes of the person who wants to control you, it's enough of an excuse for the person who's being abusive to latch on to to be abusive that day. And it could be worse. Through all of this, we also finally get to meet Matthew in the flesh. And here we see him in cahoots with Connell McGinnis, who he introduces as a friend, which is odd. I do want to also mention before we get further, the revelation that Kendra had an abortion kind of starts to break Island's brain. It shatters her view of what her mom was, of who her mom is. It also is this rare moment of vulnerability where her mom finally feels safe being honest with her. Because, like I say, Matthew has spent years pitting them against one another. And conditioning them. Trying to make sure that Island specifically has this Matthew-approved view of everything. Oftentimes, the way abusers work is by pitting people who should be allies against one another so that they can't trust one another. And also isolating people away from dissonant views. Because even though Matthew is technically outnumbered, if Aylin and Kendra can't work together, he can take them out each individually. Focus fire. And if they're too busy worrying about one another, they're not focused on him. So when we finally meet Matthew in the flesh, he's in cahoots with this guy named Connell McGinnis, who is presented as sort of this Brooklyn hipster type with an elaborate mustache and suspenders. You know, he probably spends a lot of time going to artisanal shops and things like that. It seems like he'd be quite at home in Portland and not necessarily in a good ways, as we'll see. And it's interesting because Matthew introduces Connell as a friend. And what we quickly learn is that Matthew doesn't really have friends. He just has a guy from work. He doesn't really do friendship because friendship requires vulnerability. Friendship requires egalitarianism. Friendship requires sacrifice, and that's just not who he is. Connell is being presented by Matthew as this nice Irish boy. And what 
island sees is someone that she would never assume her dad would accept into his home because, and I quote, the outfit, I guess, looks a little bit gay, at least what her dad would call a little bit gay, using it as a pejorative, which is interesting because just seriously, there is no way to look gay or bi or what have you. guess that's not really a quote. It's just more of a like paraphrasing. This is just one more thing that is odd and dissonant that is going on with Island right now. The thing we quickly learn is that Connell is, I'm just going to come out and say it, he's a white supremacist. Yeah. As soon as we actually get some revelation about him, we see that, one, he's got Nazi tattoos. Over his heart. Yeah, he's got, obviously, the swastika, and he's also got, you know, the general trappings of Norse mythology. And then also he's got the references to 88 and 14. Yeah, all of those. I mean, I don't really remember what any of those are, but I don't really care, so... Look, if you know, they're terrible. I assumed they were. You know, Island is suitably repulsed. She recognizes that, for one thing, having the Norse stuff in addition to the Celtic stuff and then conflating the two represents effectively settler mentality as well because the Vikings colonized Ireland. And then at the same time, she recognizes that she fears being taken against her will. She fears people having dominion over her. She fears her father, and she does not want to have another person treat her the way he does. I'm going to say this. I know a lot of white women especially are told to be afraid walking at night alone in a lot of places for fear of a boogeyman in the form of a person of color walking anywhere nearby them, specifically a male person of color. I'm going to say this. I am much more afraid of just straight-looking stereotypical straight-looking white men than I am of pretty much anyone else if I was to have an encounter with them at night. We also learned that not only does Connell share Matthew's very possessive and dehumanizing view of the world around him, he is also an agent of the woman in white because he bears one of her tendrils coming out of the back of his neck. Which is probably the only reason that he is allowed to step one foot, much less be invited to stay over at Matthew's house. And he treats Eileen with contempt and he tries to force her to essentially do whatever he wants. He wants her to give him a blowjob and tries to restrain her. Make no mistake, this is a sexual assault. This is depicting a sexual assault. The guy becomes erect under his, well, her dad's pajama bottoms that are too big and starts asking her questions about her sexual experiences and starts insinuating things that are very racist and very abhorrent and I will not repeat them. And think everything in this world that she is able to protect herself 
by sheer force of I am Staten Island. But even though there was no contact, this is still a sexual assault. Absolutely. This is something that she never should have had to experience, but far too many people do. So after all of this, she forces him away and pushes him through a fence using the power of being the borough, being Staten Island. And at the same time, she also alters the security camera footage so that it looks like some other intruder did this to him. And she knows, of course, that he's never going to admit that a girl hurt him. Overpowered him. After all of this trauma, she flees the house to get some air, and then she encounters Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo is, of course, strange to Island. He's got a different accent. He's vaguely not white. He's got an accent she can't place. But she can feel the cityness of him. She recognizes that he's powerful, that there is danger to him. But she also feels a weird kinship to him. And, you know, he asks her to get in the car with him. And she almost does. Until the woman in white shows up. And even as Island recognizes that the woman in white was complicit in Connell's assault. One thing I do want to point out in terms of the assault. She blames herself a bit for wearing not just pajamas, but like fully covering everything pajamas, things that are not indecent at all. But she thinks that just by being herself, by being in her own clothes, in her own skin, she has invited this assault. It's something that she's internalized from Matthew, because that's the attitude that he's had about everything. And when the woman in white shows up, again, Island is suspicious. She recognizes that the woman has told her that she can see through all of the little tendrils that are all over the place. So that means she was watching when Connell was being lurid and rapey. That not only did she stop and watch all of this, she approved of it. And Island recognizes this, but at the same time, the woman's whiteness overrides everything else in terms of how she views her. The woman is white and Sao Paulo is not. not. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. And it's this element that the woman capitalizes on. We understand that the woman in white and the cities are kind of locked in an eternal conflict. And the woman uses that to position herself as sort of a victim much the way Island sees herself in comparison to Connell. And then instead of recognizing that, oh, this is someone who can help me against people like Connell, she sees Sao Paulo as like Connell. The woman in white subtly triangulates the two of them against one another, the way Matthew has always been triangulating Island and Kendra against one another. So naturally, Island goes on the offensive against Sao Paulo, who is actually there to help her. She is so unwilling to view another person as another person if they are not conforming to her view of what another person ought to be, that 
view of the other is so powerful to her. That fear is such a driving force to her. It's so core to her that she can't see any of the complexities. She can't see the kindness or the help that Sao Paulo offers. Like I say, she's a tragic figure. And so she attacks him. And in his city, there's an earthquake. She takes a little bit of damage. But what it does is effectively cuts her off from the rest of the city. At the same time, as she's starting to feel her power, she feels like she doesn't need any of the other boroughs. They weren't there for her. They didn't protect her from Connell. They didn't protect her from this invader, Sao Paulo. She doesn't need them at all. And so she, instead of accepting this call to adventure, this call to join the greater community, rejects it and turns away. And even as she is adopting a somewhat antagonistic stance compared to the rest of the boroughs, like I say, this is not her being a villain. This is her being a tragic figure. Even as we can disagree with her choices and think that she's doing something that's horribly destructive, all we can do is bring ourselves to pity her, to feel sorry for the things that have driven her to this point. So with that, let's go ahead and move into our recommended thing of the week. It's your turn. It is my turn. So I have picked this week a fun space drama called For All Mankind. This is an alternate history retelling of the space race in a world where the Soviet Union was the first on the moon. And it charts the way this affects the space program and, you know, over the course of decades. The first season charts effectively the 70s. Over 10 years, as we see the astronauts of NASA grappling with the legacy of Project Paperclip, it sees them figuring out alternate ways to go to the moon and ultimately building a moon base instead of just landing. It sees them setting the stage for a plan to move to Mars. And the cast spans both the astronauts themselves as well as the ground staff and their families. The way that the astronaut life affects the people around them. And I gotta say, it does a wonderful job of late 60s, early 70s grounding in that time period. It also does a really good job when it does a time skip of grounding in the 80s and then also a time skip into the newest season where we see the 90s. We get to see also the way gender relations change as a result of this. So one of the things that the Americans end up doing in an effort to win is they expand the astronaut corps to include women. So a large chunk of the first season explores that female cadre of astronaut candidates and they all go on to become important players moving forward, particularly the characters of Molly, Ellen, and Tracy. And also very importantly, Danielle. Molly is sort of the hotshot test pilot. Ellen is someone who grew up flying with her father's airline. Danielle got her start working as an engineer at NASA. She worked in the computer corps 
like in Hidden Figures, and is, of course, African-American. And then we've got Tracy, who is the wife of Gordo Stevens, who is one of the primary astronauts that we follow initially. And all of these characters are complex. They are sometimes thorny, sometimes heroic. And we see that the life of the astronaut, as glamorous as it may seem, is sometimes very thankless. And it exacts a toll on their families. And them. We see this particularly in the character of Gordo, who to all exterior views is this happy-go-lucky, kind of wry, witty... Flyboy. But he also suffers a toll for this. His actions make it so that he can't cope. But you also see how does Tracy, his wife, feel about all of this and... What does it mean when she gets to start living the astronaut life herself? What's the toll that it takes on their family since both parents are now leaving for space? And I'd say every single character is given that same care, that same, let's look at the implications of this. Let's look at the toll that it's taking. Let's look at their social political slot. Let's look at characters who are homosexual that have to hide their sexual orientation for fear of being treated like they are spies, like they're a security risk. Or let's look at what's under the veneer of perfect astronaut wife. Or let's look at the political side of choosing a black woman as one of the people in the astronaut candidate pool. Let's just make sure that we are, yes, getting qualified people, but I'd say that they chose most of the women that they chose, not because of their skill, but because of the way that it looks to the general public. It's kind of dog chasing its own tail a little bit though, because obviously they do have to choose people who are competent, and would be good at this, in addition to all the political BS. And so they do choose people who are competent and good and would otherwise have had no barriers in their way if they were male. And so we see what progress can be made just by pushing it a little bit at a time. We also see that this affects the way that the U.S. and the Soviet Union see one another, the way that they interact with one another. And we see the compromises that have to get made in an effort to move the ball forward. And also the implications of not playing politics. Yeah, it's a really fascinating show and I don't want to spoil too much, but it is definitely worth watching Especially if you like a good space adventure, if you really enjoy like Apollo 13, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. And this really gets a lot of that vibe. I mean, you even get some of the same characters showing up. So yeah, you've got Deke Slayton and Gene Kranz showing up. You've got cameos from Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. I think that the first season does such a good job of setting it up. I think it gets a little more hung up in the drama aspect as we go along, but I don't think that that is necessarily bad. And I think that it gives the writers a chance to stretch what they think 
the capabilities of the space programs would be as they go along. Yeah, because this is a world where just the space shuttle itself wasn't good enough. Landing on the moon wasn't good enough for either group. They had to start living there. They had to start pushing to invest in the space program. So it's really interesting to see what that does fundamentally. And it also is something that doesn't ignore the sometimes thorny relationship between NASA as a civilian agency and the military, of which it is oftentimes seen as something of an arm and from which it actually gets a lot of its personnel. And some of its funding. Yep. So anyway, this is a show that I strongly recommend and I enjoy. We've had a lot of fun watching it and are still having a lot of fun with it. The new season is out on Apple TV right now. Yep. If you want to see what we're watching right now, that's a good shot. Now it's time for us to talk about Quote of the Week. It's your turn. What'd you pick? It still tickles me that no one gives us any guff for the fact that we keep saying Quote of the Week or Thing of the Week or what have you when it's an every other week podcast. Thank you, audience. We love you. Anyway, my quote is, People who say change is impossible are usually pretty happy with things just as they are. It's a good one. It's so true. I would even say maybe not happy with things just as they are. I think that there's two different sects of people that view change as impossible, really. The people who are happy with what is, they're usually better off. There's also the people who are afraid of what would change. Like they don't want to progress. They don't want to try to make things better. Or they don't feel like making things better for others would make things better for them. I'd say there's also a third group. Those who have been demoralized by efforts to change that never took off. There's something that's deeply tragic about a wounded idealist that turns them into a cynic. They've allowed themselves to become bitter about the state of the world because of that wounded romanticism, that wounded idealism, where they've seen too many efforts fail and they're hurt by it and they don't want to be hurt again. I think that's another powerful thing to consider. But I think that the people who are invested in halting progress are the people who have it pretty good right now. They're certainly the most powerful. And they have a way of encouraging the other two camps to feel the way they feel. Again, triangulating in many cases. Pitting one against another. Making it so that you don't see what the real enemy is, to borrow from Hunger Games. When you're so busy with infighting and so busy fighting against a perceived threat, sometimes you're just going to miss the actual threat. And you're not going to be able to present a united front against an actual threat. You can't use the solidarity that we were talking about as a way to protect yourself and those you care about. Or to enact change. Exactly. So with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. I'd like to thank you for potting with me, too. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone, the interlude we became. Join us next time on the interlude we became as we cover chapters 11 through 13 of The City We Became. 
We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to N.K. Jemison for creating this world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to so many fun bonus pods and some art that I'm really late on, I'm sorry, and other fun things. And, you know, chat with us. And there's also a link to our Discord there, as well as in the description, probably. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. So with that, I'd like to thank you with pot. I'd like to thank you for potting with me. I'd like to thank you for potting with me too. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. <laughs>